Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Hollywood's writers and actors are on strike together. For the first time in over 60 years, the two unions representing both groups have ground Hollywood productions to a halt. Meanwhile, the Barbie flick was released this weekend alongside Oppenheimer, a movie about the making of the atomic bomb. Some experts think the duo Barbenheimer, if you will, could bring the biggest movie crowds back to the theater since before the pandemic. Plus, a white country singer strikes gold in his cover of a black queer musician's song, stoking mixed feelings in Nashville's country music community and beyond. It's our Pop Culture Roundtable. Later in the show, the National NAACP Convention, opening in Boston this week, will feature a different kind of Olympics. I just think it's great to see kids of color that are so talented participating in um, like all sorts of art forms. The Afro-Academic Cultural, Technological, and Scientific Olympics, known as AXO, celebrates students in 32 categories of achievement. And some greater Boston students have made the cut. But first, joining me, Michael Jeffries, Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hi, Michael. Hi, Kelly. And Karen Huang, Lecturer on History and Literature at Harvard University. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Kelly. I'm so glad to have uh, both of you here. There's a lot to talk about. But let's start off with the strikes. Uh, We are looking at it as a double strike. There are also some other unions considering going out on strike. But the two big, the Writers Guild of America and now SAG-AFTRA, representing the actors, are out. Um, Last week, SAG-AFTRA members here in Boston uh, picketed um, as uh, the SAG-AFTRA members uh, across the country and in Los Angeles specifically are picketing. The New York Times captured uh, a picket line that included actors Sean Astin of Lord of the Rings and voice actor James Mathis III. Because we've gone over to streaming, all the formulas that used to make sense no longer do. And so now you're having actors and stunt performers and background artists and singers and dancers, all of whom are having to have second and third jobs. Basically, our careers have been turned into gig work. A lot of us rely on residual income. And for the studios to be hesitant to give us our fair share of residual income, it's really disappointing and it's it's disheartening. I wonder if you two think that the double whammy of having the actors plus the writers will be effective in at least bringing the, um, the studio producers back to the table, because right now they're not even having a discussion. I'll start with you, Michael. Yeah, I think it has to. I think we have to hope that it does. Look, we heard a little bit in the clip, but this is a moment of reckoning for the industry. Just so everyone understands, the previous model when people win money from network television was that uh, writers and actors would get residual payments based on the number of views and advertisements that the networks were able to generate. When so many of these shows went to streaming, 
the actors and writers got paid up front, but that system of residuals essentially went away. I mean, they have some residuals in streaming, but it essentially went away because largely because there were no advertisements on streaming services. And secondly, because streaming services kept the data about how frequently people were watching these shows all to themselves. So you didn't know how big of a hit your streaming show was. We, we still don't really know the viewership numbers. And without those numbers, without those measurements, we then can't offer the same kind of uh, payments based on views, right? So, so this is a moment where the old system of figuring out um, what shows were doing well, how much the job and the labor was actually worth uh, has evaporated. And if we don't as an industry, right, if they don't as an industry come to some sort of uh, fair agreement now, I think we're going to continue to see upheaval. Uh, it's going to trickle down to what we, the customers, are able to access. It's going to totally shift the labor dynamics of that industry, and everybody is going to be worse off. And I think... Um... That, Karen, that um, it may shift the labor shift the labor dynamics. Period, um, because after all, these are unions. That's that's a word that some people haven't heard in a while. Very strong unions. So there's that. Uh, the other piece of this is artificial intelligence, uh, and they have been unable both these unions to get, um, as I said, the uh, motion picture studio producers to really have a real discussion about what does that mean in their field. One of the big sticking issues is that the background actors, and this, of course, could be used for folks who are not in the background, um, there's been some discussion of just sort of replicating their images and just using it over and over. So you never have to pay the actors who are background actors. You just use their images uh, ostensibly for free forever and ever and ever. And, of course, that's not something that... Um, the actors themselves are are comfortable with. So your take on both the change in this model and what it means and and maybe um, the change in labor writ large. So I'll start with the AI question. I think one thing that people might not think too much about when it comes to like the actors union is that actors exist beyond the really big Hollywood stars that everybody knows, um, all like the movie stars and stuff who make millions of dollars. Um, the reality is Hollywood, like most other labor industries in the US, um, comprise of like a really diverse group of people. Um, and one of the case studies that have come out that I think really exemplifies or crystallizes the issue of the whole like strike is the fact that the cast members of Orange is the New Black, which is like, Netflix's like banner show back in the day, they really were not making a lot of money. Um, and, and, you know, they had to work, many of the cast members had to work second jobs just to be able to support themselves and to, you know, take caps to set. In regards to the larger issue of labor, I think this is, you know, if I may be so crude to say so, this is indicative of a larger pattern of late stage capitalism to be to um to begin with um not to say that this is an issue that can be like applied equivalently to other industries but you know the recent fears with like chat gpt and stuff i think go hand in hand with these you know ai concerns in hollywood because essentially people are worried that you know their labor is going to be replaced by you know artificial intelligence that studios and executives don't have to pay for so I think even though this strike is about Hollywood in particular, it also speaks to a broader pattern of, 
you know, just like labor replication and how that in effect is replacing humans who actually depend on on the production and the income that they get from this labor. Now, one of the uh, executives from the uh, uh, studio uh, producers was quoted anonymously in the publication deadline saying, the goal really is to wait them out and we'll drive them to homelessness. Um, and then they'll, you know, take anything. So I put that on the table to ask both of you is that if you think that no matter what ends up happening, uh, what kind of deal gets made, is this a complete game changer for both uh, unions at this point? I don't I don't know what's going to happen. Honestly, I don't think any of us can predict the future. That sort of statement leaking out from an executive or someone affiliated with the studio um, is, I think, really indicative of some of the worst fears that many of us have about the motivations and ultimate goals uh, of the people who you know control the industry. Um, but I think that on the flip side, we have to hope that um, people are going to understand this as more than just an incidental issue and look at it in terms of its long-term implications. As Karen described, the AI question is a massive one for the industry. And the fact that it can happen with extras means that it can happen with really anybody who appears on screen, right? Anybody who appears on screen, the biggest star uh, could do one day's work and their image could be sort of replicated and used over and over and over again. Uh, that would be such a seismic shift in the way we think about the nature of celebrity, uh, the way we think about the value of acting as an artistic practice, um, and really, again, the quality of and the meaning of what we're getting from all of this work. So uh, I, I just think that looking at this as a, a kind of incidental labor dispute that's just like all the others is really short-sighted. And that kind of thinking and that kind of statement from someone affiliated with the studio is disheartening because it shows they don't really understand, I think, the gravity of the questions that need to be answered right now. What would you add, uh, Karen? I think it's really hard to predict, you know, what's going to happen in the next few months. I think the same Deadline article mentioned that studios were hoping to wait until October or even until Christmas um, so that, you know, the situation, the housing and just like cost of living situation for writers who are on strike um, and actors to seem more dire. Um, and I think, you know, I again, it's hard to say what exactly will unfold from this point forward, um, but from my understanding, um, studio executives before the um, SAG-AFRA actors also went on strike. Um, they weren't even willing to meet with the Writers Guild, even though representatives from the Writers Guild wanted to meet with the studios. Um, so essentially, you know, the studio executives who are essentially benefiting from this seismic, seismic shift in you know, the AI question, as Michael called it, um, they're not really willing, as far as we can see, to bulge um, on the terms that they they are proposing. Um, I would also add that um, even though this is something that is hard to you know, predict from this point forward, I think the reactions from both sides have really indicated kind of like, I guess like the priority gap between the big wigs in, in Hollywood studios and the people who we see on our screens every day. 
um, whether it be streaming services or movie screens and so on, and how, you know, the even though they're both in the same industry, their experiences of the industry and the labor output, um, the production output of that industry are completely different. Um, and I also want to be hopeful that, you know, both unions can come to terms with the studios that they can live with. But again, it's really hard to say what's going to happen because I think it's really clear where the studio's priorities are. And of course, that is to make themselves a lot of money, even if it comes at the expense of everybody else. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Michael Jeffries, professor of American studies at Wellesley College, and Karen Wong, lecturer on history and literature at Harvard University. We're talking about the big stories in pop culture. Well, let's move on because the studios are hoping to make a lot of money on two movies um, that came out together uh, last week. Uh, It's the Barbie movie, just called Barbie, and Oppenheimer, also named after the man at the center of this um, historically uh, based uh, movie, which is about the making of the atomic bomb and the the guy who was was instrumental in, in developing that. And so people are now calling it Barbieheimer, Barbenheimer, (laughs) uh, because there's been a drive and with quite a bit of excitement for people to see both of them, to do a double feature. Here we have, Michael, two 50s icons, very different ones, but there you have it. It's an incredible moment, I think. Um, You know, you don't want to overstate stuff like this, but um, I just think it speaks so perfectly um, and tragically, I think, to some of the existential questions that we're uh, wrestling with right now um, as a society, when you think about um, the nature of uh, gender as something uh, being questioned, performed in ways uh, that uh, people are not used to seeing and the ways that plays out in a kind of imaginary and real space like the Barbie movie, um, the aesthetic of the Barbie film as a kind of escapist um, Uh, a kind of escapist world relative to the kind of cold reality of the looming apocalypse that we see in Oppenheimer. Um, I I think that there there are just so many themes in these movies uh, that balance each other out so beautifully. And in addition, um, the fact that they're being consumed back to back in this way and that they're rooted in a really different time period for the entertainment industry, which we know is in crisis because we just discussed it, um, I think speaks to the role of nostalgia in all of this, right? The 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 kind of desire that we have to like bring back that experience of going to the movies, uh, to going to opening weekend of a film as an event that we would really look forward to. Many of us let go of that um, because of things like streaming services and the, the golden era of TV. So there are just so many different elements of this story that make it compelling for me, um, but none more so than the desire for sort of escape um, and the juxtaposition with the kind of reality of some of the threats, the existential threats that we see to um, human society. Um, Karen, people are investing five hours because Oppenheimer Oppenheimer is three hours and and uh, Barbie is two. That's a lot. 
I agree. I think the two movies, even though their subject matters, um, the people who are making them seem so different in their artistic visions. I think they're actually really complementary to each other. Um, you know, a New York Times article was saying how um, some people were discussing whether to see the Barbie movie first or Oppenheimer or the other way around. Um, so you have Barbie as kind of like a palate cleanser for the darkness of Oppenheimer or, or vice versa, as it were. Um, and I think something that is so appealing to me personally about cinema going, um, well, I still remember actually going to see The Dark Knight um, actually the same weekend in 2008 um, and just being so enamored with, you know, Christopher Nolan's filmmaking at the time. Um, and I think, you know, that still holds true for a lot of people. And so to be able to experience, you know, this these two completely different films in cinema, I think effectively is a really different and really like contained form of escape that is completely, you know, divergent from how we experience streaming services, for example, because, you know, when you're sitting in a, in a movie theater, there's a kind of shared intimacy among moviegoers that you don't get as much when you're just watching a movie at home. Um, not to say that some of that experience can be replicated, um, but there's something so, I guess, like alluring about that experience that I can totally see how people would be willing to devote, say, five straight hours of their weekend to that. <laughs> um, just full disclosure, I am going to see the Barbie movie. Um, so I guess I am one of those people. I don't know about Oppenheimer yet. Maybe I'll catch it on stream later on. <laughs> Moving on to the next story. Let's talk about threads. This is Meta, what used to be known as Facebook. Um, latest entry into social media platform. It de it debuted um, just a couple weeks ago and just, you know, blew up everything. 100 million subscribers. You have to subscribe through your Instagram account. So, so Meta was able to capture folks that way and everybody's all excited. Well, it's been a week and now um, there seems to be less enthusiasm for it, at least at this moment. <clears throat> Time spent on the app has dropped 50% from 20 minutes to 8 minutes. And oh, by the way, the Twitter people are unhappy saying that, in fact, what Threads, what Meta has done is just make themselves a duplicate of what Twitter is. Uh, so before you guys weigh in, let's listen to this duo called U2TV. They made a video about the introduction of Threads to the social media world. One character represents Twitter and the other represents Threads. Threads. Are you trying to be like Reddit or something? No, it's more like Twitter. Is that? Are you Twitter? Oh my God, you are my biggest inspiration. I am? Wait, wait, wait. Are are you trying to copy me? I mean, we're not trying to copy a failing app. Oh, oh, okay. Whoa, wait, failing? Um, Do you know who my dad is? Elon Musk? Elon Musk does not fail. I'm just inspired by you. You're a true inspiration. But I'm better than you. And you're failing. Yeah, you are. Uh, so, Karen, what do you think? Something that I was reminded of as you were introducing Threads, Kelly, was how, you know, there's like a Marvel Cinematic Universe. And to me, what, um, you know, Meta seems to be trying to do is to launch a really comprehensive Meta social media universe. Um, I mean, they already bought WhatsApp and Instagram. It's been a, a long time since, um, you know, Facebook bought Instagram. Um, but, you know, that's still a thing that happened. And now with the introduction of threads, it just seems like they're trying to consolidate 
you know, all the major social media outlets that people use. Um, I can't help but regard it with suspicion because, yeah, you know, Twitter obviously has a lot of issues. A lot of issues it's ceo being one of them um, but at the same time um this this seems a little bit like a blatant attempt to eradicate twitter almost i don't know if that's too extreme but i think that is perhaps an ungenerous version of what we might interpret as you know meta's intention in launching this new app well michael it sounds like um Karen agrees with the lawyers for Twitter that uh, Threads is a little too close to Twitter in terms of its implementation, its presentation, all of that. Yeah, and, and I'm not going to offer a, a guess about how that legal story will play out, but I, I do think the recent history of Twitter is really important here, right? Because it, there's been a great deal of discussion about the sort of personality quirks of the person uh, who, who bought the platform, but what has happened is the user experience has really declined since the ownership of Twitter has changed hands. And the ways in which it has declined are really concerning considering the crisis in democracy where uh, the blue check system used to, a while ago, it used to kind of indicate more legitimate media outlets and people. And uh, the new owner of Twitter through that into a crisis, uh, the frequency with which um, bots and sort of unwanted uh, characters appear on your uh, Twitter feed, even if you didn't uh, sign up to follow these accounts, has increased since the ownership change. And I think that Twitter users who really loved it in some of its earlier iterations have been desperately searching for somewhere else to go. And one of the main stumbling blocks, as you referred to, Callie, has been the fear of losing all your followers, right? Like if, if I switch from Twitter, then what am I gonna, what's going to happen to all the followers that I've accrued? But the link with Instagram that Threads, ha that Threads has sort of mitigates that barrier to... Uh, changing over because you can just start by building up your followers from the people who you are already connected to on Instagram. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Michael Jeffries, professor of American studies at Wellesley College, and Karen Huang, lecturer on history and literature at Harvard University. We're discussing the latest pop culture news. All right. So this is a story that, you know, we've heard over and over during the music industry, for sure. Uh, but it's gotten uh, interesting uh, attention with a new example of it, and that is Luke Combs, who is uh, something of a country music star, um, as you know, popular for his own stuff, did a cover of Tracy Chapman, that's a queer black woman, a classic song, Fast Car. So let's listen to it, and then we can talk about what the controversy is on the other side. Here he is. Uh, singing Tracy Chapman's classic Fast Car. You got a fast car And I want to take it to anywhere Maybe we make a deal Maybe together we can get somewhere Any place is better Starting from zero, got nothing to lose Maybe we'll make something Me, myself, I got nothing to prove You got a fast car it's really <laughs> almost an exacting cover of the way that she uh, sang the song. But what's happened is 
it's just blown up. Like it's a new thing. He's, you know, making big bank, as the kids say. Uh, that was it was a, it was a, a success for her, but nothing uh, equivalent to what has happened for him. And of course, Nashville country music is in the throes of lots of discussions about inclusivity and exclusivity and identity. There are queer artists uh, pushing uh, to get in in and to have their voices heard. And certainly black artists have uh, been struggling along that way. A couple of them have been successful. So there we are. And folks are saying, hey, uh, Michael, if you're a white guy who sings the same song, you can make money. But a, a black queer woman, just you're just out of luck. Yeah, it's a, it's a story, as you said, Kelly, it's a story we've heard before. And I think it's important to understand First, from a historical perspective, that this is not new. This is not unique to country music. Um, you look at the history of rock and roll, for example, uh, along with the history of country. Fundamentally, these are uh, Black American musical art forms. And many of the most popular and recognizable songs uh, are attributed to white artists, but originated uh, with Black musicians. So. If anything else, if, if nothing else, this is an opportunity for us to go back and examine that history. And I think there are a few ways that we need to be thinking about this going forward. Um, one is that we have to think about not only barriers to entry for the artists themselves, but for decision makers and record labels uh, when it comes to uh, people from marginalized groups. I think that we need to think about what it means to have a different kind of industry structure where some of the decision makers about who gets promoted, right? Um, who gets signed? I think those are the kind of questions we need to answer. And then secondly, the, thing, the other thing I would say about this is the hysteria over the song is I'm not sure people have actually listened to the song and understood fully what it's about. If you listen to it just sort of on its surface, it's kind of a an escapist, a song about escapism and longing, but it's actually uh, a little bit deeper than that in that it reckons with the possibility that you might not escape, right? You might think you've broken out, but you somehow get pulled back into the place where you've always been. And that kind of lesson about um, not only escapism and longing, but about the kind of futility, the, the sense that you're pushing a rock up a hill over and over again. There's a power in this music that I think gets elided when we view it as just sort of agreeable pop music. So, so those are some of my thoughts because the song is such an important one, um, both culturally for black music, as well as when we talk about queer musical history. I don't want any of that to get lost. Karen? I think one kind of analogous, um, like earlier historical example of something um, that happened with um, Elvis and Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog um, is, you know, that was a case of another white artist um, covering a song that originated from a Black queer artist and it becoming more popular as a result. So as Michael said, this is certainly not an unprecedented example. Um, and I think it's, it's not that like, you know, Luke Combs should be canceled or his cover of the song should not exist. I think it's a good cover. Um, and I think, you know, it kind of captures a lot of what people like about the original. But not only is Luke Combs, you know, like a white male artist, um, we also 
you know, live in an era of streaming music that didn't exist back when Tracy Chapman's Fast Car first came out. Um, and that probably has helped it, you know, gain traction in a way that wasn't possible back in the late 80s, early 90s. So in that sense, you know, there's something to be said about the appeal of this song, this cover of the song in 2023, um, that certainly would not be possible back when, you know, the original was released. At the same time, um, it's a really, you know, emotional piece of music, but it also sounds emotionally distant from the subject or the singer, the, the, the performance sounds emotionally distant from the lyrics that Tracy Chapman is performing. Um, and so, you know, that's what's so appealing about the song. And that's probably why so many people, including Luke Combs, have covered it. I will say that the bottom line is I'm glad that Tracy Chapman and her song are getting more recognition in light of this. All right. Finally, I, I want to bring up something that I was just stunned by. Um, Jane Birkin, who was the inspiration behind the Hermes bag, uh, died at the age of 76 recently. Now, I mention it because I'm a purse freak. I, that's pocketbook to some people. And I've heard the name of the bag. I know it to be one of the most exclusive and expensive in the world. I never knew it was attached to a real person. I just thought it was a made-up name. Turns out uh, the British-born actress who ended up living in France and was uh, highly regarded there, that's where she also died, uh, was once on a plane with a, a gentleman who was the at then Hermes chief executive, Jean-Louis Dumas, and um, complained to him about her current pocketbook. And he designed one and then put her name on it. Uh, it's become now a thing of pop culture. That's how popular it is. So I want you to take a listen um, to where uh, scenes from Sex and the City and the Gilmore Girls and even a video tour of Kylie Jenner's purse closet. You broke my Birkin! Sorry, mistake. <gasps> Hello, I'm a girl. It's a purse. Not just a purse. It's a Birkin bag. I went to school with a guy named Birkin. I don't think this is the same Birkin. Oh. My favorite row definitely would have to be the Hermes row, and I have been collecting these bags for a minute. They're also a great investment. They're a great investment because they're thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. What do y'all think? Did you know that, first of all, did you know anything about the bag and its and, and how popular it is in pop culture and the fact that it actually was attached to a real person? Michael? I didn't know the backstory, so that was interesting to learn. I was, of course, aware of the bag, and it's you know, it's it's not really something that uh, I engage with on a day to day basis. But you can't miss it in terms of pop cultural references. I mean, we just heard of a couple, certainly in hip hop music, which is a genre I'm more familiar with. There are no shortage of references to it there as well. Um, I I think though, you know, we we kind of underestimate the the power of learning some of these origin stories because. When you have kind of a more modest and happenstance origin story like this one, it talks about the kind of, you know, it's kind of the brilliance of and, and ingenuity of kind of everyday people in making some of these interventions that go on to be either fashion sensations or pop cultural sensations. So there is a kind of, I think, inspiration to be found in rediscovering uh, where these things come from beyond just celebrating uh, their sort of, you know, popularity as a as a trend. Karen. Did you know that it was a real per that a real person um, was attached to this bag? I did, but to be honest, I didn't know much about Jane Birkin 
as an actress. Um, though after you know hearing about her passing, it totally makes sense that she you know she became a French citizen and you know died in Paris. Um, but I guess to add on to what Michael just said, my most recent um cultural reference point. Um, for the Birkin bag is this sound um, that was pretty popular last year on TikTok. Um, it's some influencer saying, my Birkin, another Birkin, <laughs> but what makes these two Birkins different? Um, and, you know, what's so fascinating about the Birkin bag is like the fact that it's this symbol, this cultural icon, right? It's something that is definitely utilitarian, but at the same time, because the price point is, I think, somewhere like 10K to 500K USD, um, it's frankly, inaccessible for most, you know, everyday people. Um, so I think there's something about the cultural fascination around the Birkin bag and, you know, the imitators it spawned that is something akin to the Barbie dream house, perhaps. Um, this is <laughs> like aspirational symbol for, you know, what people want in their daily lives. But um, it's something that is again, just like price point wise, inaccessible to most people. Um, so I think that's what the Birkin bag represents to me. Um, but I am glad that we, you know, as I guess, like a culture have um, like a moment of have this opportunity um, to kind of think more deeply about the origins of the bag. Um, and the actress who herself is a cultural icon or was a cultural icon that it was named after and dedicated to. Wow, I love that. Thank you both for joining me today. For having me. Thank you so much. Michael Jeffries is the Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. And Karen Huang is a lecturer on history and literature at Harvard University. Coming up, local black high schoolers will face off in a special competition at this week's NAACP National Convention in Boston. Young scientists, musicians, and others will compete in one of 32 categories of ACTSO, or the Afro-Academic Cultural, Technological, and Scientific Olympics. This year's Olympics will also draw participants from across the country, top competitors who will be mentored in their fields of interest. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Mm -hmm. 